0: This is Piedmont Arts, and I'm Rachel Stewart. On Friday, May 19th and Saturday, May 20th, Kazim Abdullah leads the Charlotte Symphony in their final classics concert of the season, which, by the way, uh, the Saturday performance will be broadcast live here on WDAV. Abdullah is known for his work in opera. In 2022 alone, he conducted four modern operas, including Omar, composed by Rhiannon Giddens. He was general music director of the city of Aachen in Germany from 2012 to 2017, where he was chief conductor of the orchestra there and artistic director of the Opera House. He's also served as an assistant conductor at the Metropolitan Opera, and he has guests conducted around the country for both opera productions and orchestral concerts. In fact, as we speak, he's in Arkansas uh, getting ready for some concerts there. So, Kazim, thank you so much for joining us today
1: lovely to be here with you, Rachel.
0: So you do so much opera conducting. You, you you work in both arenas, basically. Is there a big difference in working with opera and then leading a concert in the concert hall?
1: Yeah, there's a big difference, I would say. And I think the biggest difference is that when you're conducting an opera, you're just leading, of course, uh, many more people and you're leading both people that are on the stage, which can be as many as 100 sometimes. And then also um, as many as 100 people in the orchestral pit. So there's just a lot more coordination, a lot more unpredictability that can happen when one is conducting opera. So you really have to remain flexible. Yeah, you really have to sort of be on your toes, really, um, at every single moment when conducting an opera. And then when you're doing a concert, it's really... It, what, what I like about concerts is it really gives a chance for an orchestra to be the focal point and highlight. And there's a lot of things that are sort of the same that apply to both conducting opera and, and conducting a symphony concert in the sense that the more flexible an orchestra is, the more exciting a symphony concert can be. Just because uh, when an orchestra does opera, you are Yeah, you know, just like the conductor, you have to be very flexible and always listening. And those sort of same principles can apply to a concert as well and can sometimes really help make concerts much more exciting and kind of unpredictable.
0: Well, you do a lot of guest conducting and I imagine you run into ensembles that are really flexible and ensembles that are not so flexible. And, you know, how do you uh, prepare yourself for the unknown going into these situations?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. I think when when you're preparing for the unknown, the best thing to do as a conductor is just to be as prepared as possible. And that's true that orchestras, you know, that they have their own sort of strengths and weaknesses, just like a conductor can have strengths and weaknesses. What's good is that a lot of orchestras are used to at least accompanying and listening. So one thing I always try to do is find ways to instill or to inspire this aspect of listening and musicianship with whatever orchestra I'm working with. So, um, and I find if I approach an orchestra from that point of view, that things always go in the upward trajectory and they're, oh yeah, because one is just always listening, always trying to find what the musical inspiration is. And that's kind of the general approach I try to make, but that's true that an orchestra that has orchestras that do play some opera which the charlotte symphony does i think it's great that they play for the. oh look i know that they play for like the opera carolina a lot when i think that's mm-hmm. fantastic i do think that orchestras that do play opera at the same time that they bring a sort of a more vocal expressive way of playing that is inspired by playing and listening with singers
0: you started out as a clarinetist yes so actually not an opera, not a singer, a clarinetist. And I'm curious yeah. how you uh, ended up becoming a, a conductor.
1: You know, it's funny uh, because my entry into this work really comes from me being a clarinetist and having played in orchestra. So, you know, I played in youth orchestras from the time I was about 11, actually. I can remember the first time where like the light bulb went off and the spark happened was uh, there was one summer where I went to the interlocking Arts Camp. And the orchestra was playing and we were playing a movement of Jack. Of a Tchaikovsky symphony and you know I remember I wanted to kind of listen to this movement of the Tchaikovsky symphony that we were playing I went to the music library and I remember this music librarian her name was Alice I had my clarinet part to the Tchaikovsky symphony I was like oh I'd like to listen to the cd of this piece and I remember Alice told me well well why don't you get the score so she pulled out a score from wherever and gave it to me and that was my first time you know being 11 or 12 having a score and listening to the symphony and saying oh my god there's all this stuff happening and it was like literally like a light bulb went out. And really ever since then, anytime I played a symphony in youth orchestra or anything, I always wanted to have the score. So I knew what else was going on. So it was kind of so sort of like, it was like a natural development from that really throughout my teens and twenties. Anytime I played a piece, I always wanted to have the score. You know, I originally had the goal to be a clarinetist in an orchestra, um, but I always liked conducting and, you know, I got chances to conduct from time to time, whether it was the youth orchestra here or being in college and doing some new music work or something like this. I always compare conducting to being a film director in that there's no set path. We all have our own paths that we have to take in order to learn how to conduct and to get opportunities to conduct. And mine kind of came through the orchestral route. And so when I was at the New World Symphony in Miami Beach, I was a member of that orchestra for a couple of seasons. Um, It's an orchestra training program founded by Michael Tilson Thomas. During my two years there, I realized that like, I really did wanna conduct and that I wanted to try to make this as my living. And then um, I went back to school for a year and just applied for every job that was available or any, like, you know, I just applied everywhere, literally. And I ended up being part of a, a young artist program at LA Opera. And that was kind of like the first real chance to get to do some operatic repertoire, to study and to like assist conductors in that way. And then it just kind of went from there slowly, but surely.
0: Well, so I understand that you are interested in, um, you know, trying to take classical music to new and diverse audiences and that you tried some things in Aachen. That were a little different can you talk about some of those and, and your interest in doing that
1: Aachen is in a city where, that has a really large university a large technical university it's basically like the MIT of Europe and one of the things I felt that I wanted to do was make the tie between the university and the orchestra stronger. So the first thing I did was I created a concert series for the students called Einstein's Music Box, which was kind of, yeah, you know, it was a way to kind of get students in the university involved in what the orchestra was doing. So we had a series of concerts that happened under that at the university, and it became a very sort of popular concert series just because it like makes sort of teaching about these pieces we were playing, but then also like, you know, like having informal talks and chats afterwards and stuff like that, that became very popular. And then from that, that turned into another series that we did with the university where we went to various parts of the university and did concerts that were themed with whatever institute. And like we called this particular series Music Lab. You know, just to give you one example, like we went to the Automotive Engineering Institute where we did basically a traveling concert where we had four or five pieces that dealt with the subject of cars. So that was kind of one way to kind of bring two different kinds of people together. And so I just think it's like, so for me, like when programming and when thinking about, you know, how does one honor the tradition of classical music, like you know, Mozart, Beethoven and all of this, which I love dearly, but I just think it's important that music not only happen in a concert hall, but that people think that music can actually kind of happen anywhere.
0: Have you had any experience trying this in the United States? Uh, one thing that occurs to me is that it'd be different, I guess, about Germany, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, is that long tradition of classical music, you know, that they have there, that's their music. And, you know, it it seems like, I don't know, I mean, if you were to walk into just a school here, I wonder what the reaction would be. Would the students respond in the same way? I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good question. I I definitely have done concerts in Unusual spaces, like whether it's like like you know like a school cafeteria or a church or a yeah you know like a foyer of a business or something like this. And I think that that kind of thing can definitely work. And I think it's a what what I think that is always helpful in those situations is when the people can really be close to the people playing the instrument so that they hear and feel how the people play their instruments, how virtuosic they are, how exciting it can be. And I think that's part of the thing of building audiences is that, yeah, there should be normal concerts, but then there also has to be kind of more chamber music-like concerts or concerts where you even play a symphony, or maybe a smaller scale symphony or something like this, but that where people can really kind of hear, you know, touch and see the people so that they really see how it works.
0: What do you think is, uh critical for the future of classical music and future audiences uh, to to make sure the audiences are there?
1: I think one thing that's critical, and I think it's interesting because I kind of represent that, you know, I am a product of public schooling. And, you know, I came up in a time where, you know, when I was in fourth and fifth grade, I got in my public school, my public elementary school, I got the chance to choose an instrument. And I was lucky that I had a public school grade teacher that recognized that I was a pretty good musician and to do as many outside activities outside of our public school elementary band as possible so I think like that that's one thing is just making sure that's like that really every student whether they go to public private or now charter schools that they have a chance to at least learn an instrument or sing in a choir or do something artistic and musical because I think that is just like sports is so important to uh, childhood development and character and like learning and like you know the problem solving and practicing and sticking with something music kind of plays the same role and I think that what what I wish that people would know is that when a child learns music you keep that for life just getting kids involved in live music making and the sharing of music is a way to sort of keep it in the forefront oh yeah so that people just don't think that music is something that you press a button on your computer and that's music you know what I mean that's right. what I think mm-hmm. is yeah like to me that's what's really important and I think that that's something that um we as musicians kind of have, just have to just always make it clear that you no know, music is something that's meant to be made and shared
0: well can we talk about some of the music that you'll be performing with the Charlotte Symphony you've actually got two symphonies and a violin concerto which sounds like a lot (laughs) to me. Uh,
1: (laughs) It might seem like a lot, but you know, it's funny, the program is actually not as long as you would think. So like, you know, like one has kind of like a very bustling operatic, like classical symphony uh, with the nickname Prague. It has a Bohemian symphony that kind of is very evocative of the countryside. And then I think, um, and then the concerto is is basically Stravinsky's, it's like, I guess you could say his balletic homage to the classical style. Yeah, so actually, these first two works in the first half, they're about 25 minutes and then 20 minutes. So the Scherzing Violent Concert is actually not very long. So it, it might seem like it's a long program, but that's actually really, um, it's under two hours. This Mozart Symphony is called the Prague, and it's basically called that because Mozart, I would say, he adored Prague and he had great feelings of Bonomi, I guess you could say, for Prague just because they treated him so well and they loved his music and they performed his music so often. And so this particular symphony, Symphony Number no. 38, is a kind of very intensely dramatic and celebratory work that in relation to Mozart is definitely music on a grand scale. And I would say that this symphony is sort of different than his symphonies that came before in that one thing, it's only in three movements. So there's no minuet movement. And I think that minuets and trios were associated with Vienna. And this was at a time where I don't want to say there was some anti-Viennese or anti-Viennese sentiment, but there was definitely kind of a like they should do their music styles. We'll do our music styles here in Prague. So there was a little bit of that, I would say. And that's also publicly why it's in three movements. The other thing that I think is really interesting about the symphony is that it kind of foreshadows what Mozart was going to do with his operas as far as works like Don Giovanni and like the Magic Flute. So the, this particular symphony opens with a with a really grand introduction that's about two minutes long. And so it's, he had never actually done that before, have such a long, complex introduction before a symphony. And he does the same thing with the overtures in Don Giovanni and Magic Flute. Like I said before, uh, this particular symphony is really all about counterpoint, especially the first movement. And it's almost like the way he uses counterpoint is almost like an opera so if someone has seen the marriage of figaro or something like this where like you know you have these big dramatic finales with all these characters in fighting and secretly conniving and stuff like this he really embodies this in the first movement of the symphony it's really exhilarating how like how dramatic and how complex it is and then from there, you go to the second movement, which is, um, has just lovely wind solos and things like this. And then the third movement of the symphony, he actually quotes a scene from his opera. It's the scene between Susanna and Carabino, where Susanna is trying to hide Carabino from her husband who's coming back. In that little like, scene, there's kind of intrigue and comedy, and like he basically uses that theme in the symphony and basically does the same thing. So it's... Um, in which I um, it's really, it's in the marriage of Figaro. It's a very kind of like fast, short movement in this particular opera, but he uses a theme from that in this symphony. From there, we go to the Strzivinsky Violin Concerto. He wrote his neoclassical violin concerto. This it, is, I mean, it's now called a neoclassical violin concerto, but he wrote it in 1930, and he wrote it for a violinist called Samuel Dushkin. And according to sort of one famous anecdote, which is really funny, it's, um, when they were meeting Stravinsky, he wrote out on like a napkin or something like this. He wrote an unusual triple stop. And he wrote it on a restaurant napkin. And he asked Dushkin, oh, would you be able to play this? He said, oh, that's no problem. And so this particular chord that he wrote in this napkin, um, it's kind of like a musical signature of the whole concerto. So it really opens each of the four movements of the concerto, and so it's kind of like a passport to each movement. And so this particular work of Stravinsky, like it's um, wonderfully rhythmically complex, and it really feels like one giant dance. And one thing that listeners might not know is that George Balanchine he actually made a very famous ballet on the music of this concerto. So um, it's Stravinsky, but it's like really funky rhythms that you can dance to, and it's sort of yeah, it's a great, really compact, dynamic piece. And then the program will close uh, with Dvorak's Eighth Symphony. This symphony just like inhabits a really sunny field, pastoral world. And it has these big, beautiful bohemian folk melodies. It has rustic peasant dances. And just to put it simply, uh, Dvořák Eighth, I would say, is really just filled with an effortless stream of melody.
0: Well, thank you for telling us about it. And definitely something to look forward to. I've been speaking with Kazim Abdullah who will be guest conducting the Charlotte Symphony in their final classics concerts of the season. Those are coming up Friday, May 19th and Saturday, May 20th. And uh, we will look forward to having you in Charlotte. And thanks for the time today.
1: It is a pleasure, Rachel.